This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the African American Studies channel at the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Edmonds, and I'm very excited to be sitting here today with Dr. Joseph Darda. He's here to talk about his newest book, The Strange Career of Racial Liberalism. Dr. Darda is an associate professor of English at Texas Christian University. He is the author of How White Men Won the Culture Wars, A History of Veteran America, and Empire of Defense, Race and the Cultural Politics of Permanent War. Thank you for being here today, Joe. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you, Brittany. I'm excited to be with you. Yeah, so I wanted to start just by hearing a bit about the book. So can you just, you know, tell us about the book? What's, What's going on in the strange career of racial liberalism? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So The Strange Career of Racial Liberalism, um, you know, is, as the title suggests, a history of uh, the era of racial liberalism, which, um, although um, it, you, you could argue that it extends further back and further forward, um, is really a dominant uh, racial doctrine between 1940 and 1954. It's a period that's often described as this kind of transitional moment between um, the age of Jim Crow and the modern civil rights era. Um, And what I explore um, in this book um, is the formation of racial liberalism, which was a kind of moderate uh, racial ideology that existed between sort of hardline segregationists on the right and materialist anti-racists on the left, often associated with socialism or with communism. Um, And this was um, a group of uh, of intellectuals, of writers, of politicians who advocated uh, not for the transformation of the structures of U.S. society, but for the reforming of minds. Uh, the term of the time was we needed to defeat race prejudice. Um, and so this was these, this was a dominant set of ideas in the 1940s and 1950s. But I suggest in the book um, its legacy is, is very much still with us. And in particular, uh, the focus... Um, in this in this book, in my book, is is on the way in which racial liberalism introduced um, a certain assumption about the way that time and change operate. Uh, this idea, it's sort of the slogan of racial liberalism, that uh, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. The idea that things are going to sort of inevitably get better, we're going to achieve a more perfect union. And so I look in particular at what the effects of that assumption about how time operates and how change happens um, affected not just the 1940s and 1950s, but the subsequent movement. Oh, that's great. Well, so before we sort of dive into that, because one of the things I was curious about as I was reading, I mean, you just sort of gave us a way of understanding where racial liberalism fits in a kind of 
political spectrum. But I was curious about like whether or not there are different kinds of liberalisms. And I know this can get annoying, right? We have, you know, we don't need to proliferate different forms of liberalism. But, you know, sort of throughout this book, I was very curious about sort of black actors themselves who often the most of the black actors you sort of profile, um, and these are writers, politicians, intellectuals, preachers, um, activists for the most part, you're sort of slotting them into these different paradigms, right? They're either, for the most part, they're either mostly a materialist anti-racist or they're kind of falling into, and by falling into, for the most part, you describe them as sort of playing into um, this sort of rhetoric of reforming minds, reforming hearts. And so I'm curious about thinking about whether or not there is a kind of radical Black liberalism that is maybe invested in certain kinds of materialist anti-racism, but is also sort of committed to the American state in different sorts of ways. And you kind of broach this a little bit, but you end up sort of drawing a, a, a distinction between people who sort of believe in the state and who are opposed to it in terms of sort of resolving the crises that are born out of racism. That becomes another sort of dividing line for you in your articulation of liberalism. And so this was just a question that kind of swirled around my head for your entire book. And I wonder, I wonder what you would say to it. Um, yeah. And that's a really great point. And, and, and certainly, and certainly there, there is sort of no, it's not a sort of a one note racial liberalism. Um, and, and this is a question that uh, the political philosopher Charles Mills has explored recently. Um, I think he calls it black radical liberalism and sort of consider sort of what that might look like. His argument is sort of that the pervasive liberalism that we've always operated under is actually a white a white liberalism um, and that uh, colorblind liberalism is a way of sort of reinforcing that white liberalism as norm um, and that what we actually need is a kind of race conscious uh, liberalism a liberalism that's that's honest about the way in which race and white supremacy have shaped um, modern liberal ideas and modern liberal states um, and so so and, and I certainly think that we see that frequently with many of the the intellectuals the thinkers that um, that crop up as part in this story um, and I think the the larger point that I'm making is is that even as there is a, a, a diversity of ideas and orientations to liberalism, that this this sort of dominant form of racial liberalism that emerges from World War II is so pervasive and so dominant that often thinkers who are thinking about liberalism differently are kind of sucked into or rearticulated in the language of this dominant form of racial liberalism um, so that you see... Uh, say someone like uh, Lorraine Hansberry in the 1950s, who comes out of this more radical tradition. She's editing and writing for uh, Paul Robeson's newspaper, Freedom. Um, but I think you see the way in which she's received by this kind of uh, larger American uh, public that has been so schooled in the, in the kind of the language and the thinking of racial liberalism, that it's hard to sort of meet Lorraine Hansberry where Lorraine Hansberry is arriving and the kind of thinking that she's bringing to her work um, so that she gets rearticulated in the public sphere as a kind of another American dreamer, right? A, a sort of a, a racial liberal. Um, and so, so I think it's a really, your, your point is, is, is absolutely um, is, is spot on in the sense that this is not 
um, a period where everyone is thinking the same thing or there are not other ways of, of addressing racial liberalism other than being, say, a, a race radical. I don't want to suggest that it's sort of, you know, there are there are sort of race conservatives, there are race liberals and there are race radicals. Um, those are really permeable boundaries, um, but that there is a kind of um, uh, sort of uh, sort of a center of gravity that's sort of really pulling people into the orbit of racial liberalism, even as they may be resisting those ideas and the assumptions around uh, around race that are forming there. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Um, and I think we're going to get into this a little bit more as we talk about your different chapters. Um, but before we do, I'm, I'm curious about how you would categorize this book, um, sort of in your introduction of it, you, you called it a history. And I don't mean the introduction to the book. I mean, just now a few moments ago. And so I was curious as I was reading it, you know, this is a literary scholar writing this history. And so I wanted to know if you think this has sort of special purchase on how we interpret culture or literature or intellectual history, uh, or just kind of what drew you to writing a book like this as a, as someone who was trained as a literary scholar. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, you know, there, there is a kind of, um, <laughs> a confusion to my my disciplinary at home anymore. You know, I am, you know, as you say, uh, an English professor. My my background is in literature, um, and and I think this is, you know, uh, a cultural history um, that maybe brings a kind of literary sensibility or literary sort of method um, to to its archives, which extend well beyond literature itself, um, and. And I will say that literature is is pretty frequently. I think if you look at the my previous books as well, I think someone would not be would be sort of maybe surprised or uh, wouldn't assume necessarily that I was an English professor or that my background was in English. Um, and and yet I think I've come to each of my projects sort of through the literature. It's of course what I spend you know most of my days thinking about with students. It's it's the, those are the classes I teach for the most part. Um, and I think you know one thing that has always fascinated me about English departments is um, the 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 value that we put on reading as a potential sort of solution to misunderstandings and to uh, anti-black racism and other forms of discrimination that I think is so naturalized in an English department that we don't even think twice about the things that we're saying. Um, and yet uh, it would sound sort of strange to even someone in, in a department, maybe just down the hallway. Um, and, and that was something that really intrigued me initially in sort of a more present day context, sort of this idea of literary solutionism, you know, read this and the following social transformation will come, which, uh, you know, obviously at the surface, when it's stated in that, those terms sounds entirely silly. Um, but I wanted to sort of figure out where that came from. Um, and at first, I, I think I assumed it's just, you know, the humanities is always under attack. And so we maybe, you know, are trying to find ways to justify the importance of the thing that we do. Um, but I really found this language to be quite pervasive beginning in the 1940s. Um, and it was really introduced by by, um, both by uh, uh, educational systems, but also by a series of liberal philanthropies um, that were really invested in supporting um, writing both by black authors, but also by white liberal writers. Um, and the Rosenwald Fund is probably the most famous example of this, but also the Ford Foundation and others. Um, and so that was really how I came back to this. I wanted to sort of explore, like, where does this kind of racial solutionism come from? How did it ultimately get attached to 
literature as this kind of easy, good thing to do. You know, if you don't know how to respond to larger crises in society, you know, read this book. Um, and so once I followed the literature, the literary sort of trail back to the 1940s, it then sort of branched out to thinking about anthropology and sociology and the law. Um, and I saw sort of a similar kind of liberal solutionism emerging from those other um, those other spheres as well. And I wanted to sort of piece those together. And so, um, so I, I really came to the project through the literature initially, um, as I have with previous projects, but then I felt like I couldn't tell that story exclusively through the literature. It wasn't exclusively a literary story, um, although literature is central to it. Yeah. I mean, after hearing that response, you know, I'm interested in, this is maybe a kind of a, a president, a presentist question, but I guess, you know, how you just spoke about about sort of English literature, English departments and your sort of interest in some of the topics that appear in your book, particularly literary solutionism and its history that stretch back, stretches back all the way to the 1940s. It had me thinking about, you know, sort of this idea of sort of literature, literary solutionism being a kind of handmaiden of sort of these big philanthropic um, organization, something that we can easily see today. And I guess I'm curious about, and this is a big question, and it kind of does take us into the present, but also we're, we're going to keep talking about, about your book and some of what you investigate there. But I'm curious about the relationship between these sort of independent philanthropic institutions and organizations, sort of what you're calling literary solutionism, which I think can now include a broad range of media sort of beyond just books. And then just the sort of, you know, liberal humanist academy um, and all the sort of shifts that we're seeing in it across the 20th century. I'm, I'm just curious about that question just after your response. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a really good it's a really good point. I think that is that is sort of what I, I see throughout the 1940s, and 1950s and that we see again today, I think, which is that it's much more about those institutions than it is about the individual artists or creators or writers. Um, and and I think that has a lot to do with the way in which universities, as someone like Roderick Ferguson has pointed out, are really interwoven with state and capital and often sort of offer a kind of structure for thinking about difference um, for state and capital, um, you know, so that, you know, Toni Morrison never uh, told us to, uh, you know, read this novel and you'll be saved, right? That's, that's what we're, that's what the institution says, right? Um, and so it has less to do with the, the with the, the novelist or the poet or the artist than it does with the way that they're, they're writing, their thinking often gets kind of rechanneled through those institutions. And I think you're right. I think that the, um, the academy is is really central to that, and I think that it's it's consequential thinking about the 1940s and 1950s in this respect because um, so much of the kind of modern university that we uh, occupy and work in today was sort of formed and structured at that moment, uh, at this moment where there was this kind of per- pervasive idea introduced by many of these philanthropies that. Um, reading was the trick. It was the way to, um, to address, you know, what was then called race prejudice. Um, and, and I think one thing that's striking in going back and looking at, you know, especially like the Rosenwald fund and the people who were heading up these philanthropies at the time is that they understood that their job was not simply to do their work independently, you know, as a standalone project, but that the way that you, you made a lasting impact on society was that you got the state and you got universities to adopt 
your way of thinking, your way of your way of um, thinking about art or commerce. Um, and and so it's I think it's in many ways, those were very successful endeavors, um, you know, that that even though the Rosenwald Fund, for example, ended in the late 1940s, many of the ideas that the Rosenwald Fund introduced were adopted by universities, were adopted by, um, you know, by the federal government. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I ask is just because it seems like we're in this moment and you talk about this a bit in your epilogue where there is a kind of radical veneer to sort of discourse about race, discourse about blackness, but it's very much for the most part instrumentalized by huge outside external philanthropic organizations. And yet even in your epilogue, you were kind of hesitant, I guess, to characterize some of that language and discourse as liberal. Um, But to me, you know, as you've been speaking and just sort of thinking across your book more generally, it does seem like maybe people should read some books so that they can learn more about how the U.S. operates sort of civically, politically. Um, But that's a whole other place to to, to go. Um, But that's why I was sort of interested in that question. But just sort of turning to your book, um, sort of each of your chapters is framed as a kind of anti-racism as sort of different things. Anti-racism as war, as civil rights, as education, as colorblindness. Um, and so I guess I'm, I'm, I'm interested in thinking about how you're using the term anti-racism and whether or not that, that term is circulating differently in the 1940s, 1950s than it maybe circulates now. Like what is anti-racism in uh, the liberal imaginary? Or in the racially liberal imaginary. Yeah, yeah, and that's a that's a great question. It um, and I should say that the the titles, yeah, which have a kind of symmetry to them, that was in some ways my my editor's idea more than it was mine. I think I had a bunch of probably sort of more confusing academic titles, but uh, my my wise editor was like, well, this will streamline it. So, um, but but you're right that that I think the the term anti-racism did mean something somewhat different in the 1940s and 1950s. And that's, and that's part of the reason sort of to go back to the epilogue, I was sort of a little bit reluctant to sort of um, overstate uh, the, the, the ways in which the 1940s and 1950s can reveal something about, you know, 2022, Um, even though I think it can, but I I sort of wanted to sort of, you know, limit, limit uh, the scope for that specific reason. Um, And part of the story has to do with the coining of the term racism, which, um, which really didn't arise, um, you know, in the way that we we think of it today until, uh, until 1940. It's often attributed to uh, to Ruth Benedict, um, who wrote a, a small volume in 1940, um, at the urging of her um, of her advisor, Franz Boas, um, sort of talking about this as being sort of one of the emerging or dominant isms um, of the of the modern era. Bless you. Um, and it um, and so so I think that the way in which it's articulated initially during World War two um is is pretty fascinating um if you think about the way in which um and this is sort of an argument i make i sort of lay out in the first body chapter of of the book which is that this term racism was really introduced in the context of world war ii um and war was used by ruth benedict and by others at the time as um a sort of as something that would be could be understood through the metaphor of war that anti-racism was initially articulated as a kind of war um, and this had a number of consequences for what anti-racism would be over the next 20 years which is that it was um, one there was an assumption that it was um, temporary um, although we of course know that wars don't necessarily end in the in a US context anymore um, but that there was this assumption that this was something that could be 
achieved within the span of a few years or within the span of a single generation, defeating, uh, defeating racism, defeating white supremacy. Two, it closely attached uh, struggles against discrimination, struggles, uh, struggles against racism to with the state and even with state violence. Um, and, and so those were some of the ways in which I see this concept of what it meant to fight or struggle against racism being articulated in the 1940s that, um, that really endure. And of course it changes over time. Uh, Jody Malamed wrote, you know, uh, I think a pretty widely read book, Represent and Destroy, in which she makes the argument that we need to understand how racial liberalism sort of takes these various, you know, operates differently in different periods. I think her terms were sort of there's racial liberalism and then there's liberal multiculturalism and then there's um, racial neoliberalism. Um, And so she offers sort of these different understandings of what that looks like. Um, And, uh, and so, so that's, that's all to say that this is a particular iteration of what uh, anti-racism looks like and what racial liberalism looks like a a very constrained form. Um, And, and yet, you know, as before, it's sort of, there's a kind of imperfect match between what we see happening in the forties and fifties and um, and what we see uh, see maybe today. Yeah, so I have a I have a question sort of related to that um, and to thinking about sort of chronology um, and thinking about across these different chapters, which do kind of march forward through time. Um, I'm wondering about whether or not all these sort of different discourses and different spaces in society where we see this this particular dominant form of racial liberalism operating. I wonder if you're seeing it, if you're making an argument that it's sort of exhausting these different sectors and just sort of moving on to different parts of society to cannibalize those, or if all of these things are happening and sometimes the the timelines of your chapters do overlap. But I guess I'm just curious of the nature of this concept sort of operating in so many different parts of society simultaneously and through so many different kind of instrumentalized um, metaphors, like conceptual metaphors, right? Because war is very different than education, right? And the idea that this term, this concept um, is sort of portable enough to work in both sort of areas of society seems to me, I don't know, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And that, it is a good, it's a good, it's a good point. Because it is, you know, these are, these are people working in very different, different spheres. Um, and yet one thing that, that just, uh, just uh, fascinated me throughout is what a small little elite world um, racial liberalism was in the 1940s. Um, what what is really interesting is just how frequently many of the characters in the books or people in the book uh, keep coming into contact with one another. Um, that there was um, a lot of interaction between. Um, sort of the Columbia School of Anthropology and the Chicago School of Sociology, um, that even someone like Grace Halsell, who was, uh, you know, infamously, uh, uh, you know, passed as a black woman in the 1960s. If you follow her story back to the 1940s, she was at Columbia University taking classes from Ruth Benedict, um, you know, as, you know, as someone in her, I think, early 20s. Um, and so, so even as these are sort of different spheres, um, it, it is really striking. And, and, you know, even with Franz Boas, you know, you, if you think about, you know, you know, Zora Neale Hurston being one of his students, like, it's amazing. It was amazing to me throughout just how much the literary and anthropology and sociolo- sociology and law were in, in were interacting with one another, and you can you see those things arrive in many different places. So if you dig deep into, you know, a lot of the 
the sort of run up to Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, um, it's just amazing how much how much sort of sociology and anthropology and literature and law, of course, all kind of converge on that moment. And these ideas that were all developed sort of somewhat independently from one another, um, ultimately arrive at a very similar place um, uh, by the end of the period sort of the, the sort of the, the, the primary period that I'm um, that I'm invested in tracing in this book. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, you know, turning to your first chapter and thinking about your discussion of sort of the anthropologist there, you've already sort of talked about this a bit, um, but you sort of characterize, you sort of say that we've misunderstood sort of anthropologists of the 1940s and 1950s and their role in sort of perpetuating race science. And I'm curious if you if you could say more about how how and why anthropologists were so sort of central into to sort of enfolding race science into this sort of new racial liberalism. And also that phrase that's quite evocative, you use several times throughout the book, this idea that what we've sort of previously thought of as a break isn't really a racial break, but is a racial bridge. And so I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Yeah, of course. Um, and that that's a term that I should, I should say I'm sort of alluding to Howard Winant there, who sort of famously describes World War II as this, uh, as this, this break in, um, in, in not just um, racial formation in the U.S., but around the world, that this was, you know, a crisis brought on by the collapse of a colonial and uh, and segregationist order, um, and and so this is a, a period of radical, of radical transformation. The way that people uh, think about uh, about race and about difference, um, and the the sort of Franz Boas and his students, um, chief among them, Ruth Benedict, Margaret Mead, uh, Jean Weltfish. Um, these are people who are often given a lot of credit for developing cultural anthropology as kind of the dominant form of anthropology. Um, and so you'll often sort of see popular histories of this period, um, in which there's this understanding that anthropology was, a, a kind of race science and in a, in a, in, in that it was Franz Boas who was responsible for moving us away from physical anthropology, which was often about measuring cranial size and, and things that seem very, you know, uh, very problematic by our, by our eyes today, um, and moving us towards cult- cultural anthropology, understanding that, you know, that, that cultures are constructed that notions of difference are, are largely social that we that we sort of imagine and construct these these ideas um, and what is really interesting in going back to the writing that takes place in the 1940s is that uh, Franz Boas and Ruth Benedict and their colleagues are still very much invested in physical anthropology and invested in the idea that there are effectively uh, three or depending on which one which one you read four human races um, and and then the kind of attach uh, culture to those physical differences. Um, I refer to this in the book as biologizing culture. And so rather than this radical shift from a, um, a physical understanding of human difference towards a cultural understanding of human difference, there is actually a way in which this thinking that takes place in the 1940s very problematically bridges that, uh, that idea of physical difference to cultural difference and attaches them to, to one and the other. Um, and, and so that was sort of what I wanted to look at, you know, in, in terms of thinking about it in the context of Howard Renant's notion of a, of a racial break. Um, what gets carried forward in maybe muted form um, into the post-war period, this post-racial break moment? 
Yeah, no, I was very fascinated by sort of these questions of sort of race, race science, and sort of it somehow being able to live on and it living on in the sort of very vehicle that it was said to kind of eradicate it to some extent, or to at least sort of dislodge it um, from where it had previously sort of been. Um, I'm curious about, I'm curious about one, whether or not, I know you're describing sort of racial liberalism, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm curious about whether or not you sort of see it operating in sort of liberalism generally, this sort of, sort of latent race science. And I'm also curious about how it relates to some of the materialist anti-racists who you cite on the left, because I mean, one of the things I was struggling with across your book is sort of when trying to locate these people in different political camps. And I get that they sort of move. There may be, these are unstable categorizations. Um, I guess I was sort of a bit disturbed by not being able to understand how all these different actors were understanding blackness itself. And it seemed to me that sometimes some of the materialist anti-racists you were quoting were were certainly liberal in their understandings of race, for example. And so Mm -hmm. I, I guess, I guess the big question is, what is the legacy of the anthropologist sort of being able to, I don't know, almost like Trojan horse, this sort of race science into this sort of broader liberal politics? And do you see it as being as sort of dominant as having as great of a center of gravity as sort of racial liberalism itself? Is that actually what makes it so attractive to so many different kinds of actors, including those who say that, you know, nominally say that they're opposed to such science? Because I even, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I can keep asking that question, but you get what I'm saying. I think I absolutely do. Yeah, and you're and you're totally you're totally right. I think that this is um, you know if, if I'm hearing your question correctly, like I think that the, um, the this is actually core to racial liberalism. So if if I'm thinking about the way that racial liberalism takes shape during this period. Um, and, and especially even, you know, I, I, I sort of um, used this language before, right, this idea that we often think about racial liberalism as this bridging period between uh, an era dominated by Jim Crow and an era dominated perhaps uh, by the modern civil rights uh, movements, um, that, um, that it overlooks the way in which it carries forward a lot of the sort of racial, uh, dominant racial ideology of the period that existed prior to the 1940s, and and I think that's actually central to understanding the shape that's, that's that racial liberalism takes, and that it carries forward into this subsequent uh, this subsequent period. Because I do think it's it's too easy to assume that this is this moment where we move from thinking about uh, difference uh, in a sort of uh, biological context to one in terms of a cultural context in which racism persists, but in a cultural vein. Um, And I think that recognizing the way in which those two things are woven together helps us understand perhaps better uh, the way in which um, anti-Blackness continues to be articulated through notions of physical difference um, and not merely the cultural difference um, that that we might associate with racial liberalism. And that's that's not just simply forces al- that are aligned against the racial liberals, but that in fact, it's, it's, it's actually embedded in racial liberalism, racial liberal thought itself. Yeah, I guess, I guess my question would be like, during this period, do you see someone sort of articulating an anti-essentialist, materialist politics? I do. And this is, this is where, and I don't, I don't spend enough time on her, but uh, Zorino Hurston's thinking in this period is really quite fascinating. 
And I'm, I hope that, or I think that some of the work that I'm doing around this period sort of situates why her thinking fits so poorly into this period, which is that I think that at the time people didn't know what to do with Hurston um, because she would articulate ideas that seemed conservative at times in terms of like her response to Brown v. Board of Education um, and radical at other times. And and so I do think that you see with someone like Hurston sort of this kind of reaching for, yes, a kind of anti-essentialist materialist understanding of difference and inequality, but without the kind of institutional infrastructure around her for those ideas to um, find an audience in some ways. She famously struggled to publish during this period. And I think that's no coincidence that um, that many of her ideas just jived very poorly with racial liberalism. And so, so again, at, you know, and maybe I'm ducking your question here, but I do think that a lot of it has to do with not just simply putting the idea out there, but also having some of the structures around those ideas for them to be circulated and then heard. Yeah. So sort of as racial liberalism sort of starts infiltrating different sectors of society, I mean, your second chapter is titled Anti-Racism as Civil Rights. Um, I'm curious about, you know, you use this phrase, the liberalization of human rights. And so I'm curious about what shift happens at the level of policy um, that makes civil rights look attractive to, as a matter of policy, to you know U.S. politicians, but also that sort of subsumes all the sort of activist energy that's trying to operate sort of beyond the U.S., um, beyond the sort of U.S. nation state. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I think a lot of this has to do with, and it's in part of that part of that chapter addresses this series of petitions that is introduced to the United to the then new United Nations by. Um, by a series of uh, some liberal, some radical groups sort of suggesting that the UN needs to intervene on behalf of black America, that uh, that black Americans' human rights have been violated by the U.S. state. Um, and and so the, the, the failure of those petitions is often attributed to uh, the Truman administration's anti-communism. Um, but instead, in this chapter, I look at the way in which uh, Truman was, yes, uh, towing a kind of anti-communist line, but was also kind of courting this emerging idea of civil rights as a way to kind of tamp down a potentially radical black human rights movement that would have been, and it was, um, international in scope, that was invested in an anti, in linking an anti-colonialist politics to an, an anti-Jim Crow politics. Um, and, and so what I try to explore in the chapter and what I see many of these intellectuals of the period asking is kind of the reverse of the the idea that we associate with Hannah Arendt, which is, you know, can, is that, you know, she famously made the argument that human rights can't exist without civil rights, that you need a powerful state to, uh, to, uh, to turn to if you want to have, if you want human rights to mean anything. So that if you are a refugee, you may have an abstract form of human rights, but you aren't able to actually protect or shield those human rights without a state to uh, to protect you. And, and I sort of see a lot of intellectuals in the, in the 40s sort of asking um, this question of the reverse, which is, can you have civil rights without human rights? Is there a way in which the U.S. state could confer this new concept of civil rights 
without necessarily guaranteeing human rights by virtue of continuing to carry forward this kind of narrative idea of who is human or what that category of the human means and looks like. Um, and, and I think a lot of that arises from this anxiety of uh, a growing black human rights movement led by um, by folks like William Patterson and like W.E.B. Du Bois, who find themselves increasingly kind of on the, on the outs with groups that they had once been at the center of. Yeah, so a part of what I found so fascinating about your book is your ability to kind of reframe these moments and figures that we think we know well um, and to tell us something more about them through this lens of, of racial uh, liberalism. And so I'm curious, you know, sort of as we move um, on to your third chapter, I'm curious about, which is called anti-racism as education. Uh, I'm curious about the sort of role of novelists, of literature, um, about sort of thinking about how literature circulates in a sort of broad public, but also thinking about the prominence of literature at this time, how it gets sort of subsumed by this sort of dominant cultural logic of racial liberalism. And I'm also curious, though, like sort of within that narrative that you're telling, about whether or not sort of literature can serve sort of radical purpose, because certainly many of the authors who you include in the book believe that it could. Um, and so mm-hmm. I'm curious about, about that. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I shouldn't sort of overstate my, uh, you know, my critique of sort of literary solutionism, because of course, I'm a, you know, it's what I do for a living. And I'm not trying to put myself out of a job necessarily. Um, but, uh, but I do think I do think it is, you know, there, there is a lot that, um, that literature can and does do during this period. And, and it's really the thing that, that sort of looking back on it, that, that I think had to have been so frustrating for many of these writers is that, what they write often gets very disconnected from how that thing gets circulated and marketed by publishing houses, uh, by philanthropic organizations that are invested in their book um, in sort of a narrow, within a sort of narrow channel, which is often geared toward a kind of uh, a white middle class audience um, and this understanding of, you know, if, if one can come to know um, you know, difference through literature that that can potentially transform society. Again, going back to sort of racial liberalism as being very oriented toward um, transforming hearts and minds, um, that literature, I think, not coincidentally becomes um, sort of one of the premier tours or one of the premier uh, tools for uh, for carrying out this kind of, um, you know, hearts and minds transformation that is core to, to racial liberalism. And so, um, so I think it's really interesting going back and looking at, at writers like, you know, I mean, the sort of the dominant example of this is, is Richard Wright, um, who um, in many ways was the kind of uh, the model for the Rosenwald Fund and for other philanthropic organizations uh, that wanted to promote literature um, as a tool of anti-racism. Um, and, and the way in which Wright um, was sort of constantly, you know, sort of taken and redirected toward a kind of liberal center. Um, and, uh, and I think that we see that sort of again and again with, uh, with writers during this period. And to some extent, I think we see that happening today with, uh, the, with the sort of the emergence of the anti-racist reading list and 
um, the disconnect often between what those writers, I think, are trying to to do in some cases, and some of them fully embrace, I think, what what is being done with their writing. But others, I think, uh, you know, I have to assume, not that I've spoken with them, that they're probably shocked oftentimes by people who come to their events and bring a, even having read the entire book, right, might have a very different sense of what that book was trying to achieve from what they actually said uh, between the covers. Yeah, I mean, on this question, I guess, I guess one of the things that keeps trip, there are several things that keep tripping me up about thinking about sort of racial liberalism, and I keep wanting to think about its afterlife in 2022. Um, but one of the things that, that trips me up is, what would you say to someone who said, well, look, we did change hearts and minds, right? Like, like racism on every indice that we have to measure it is so significantly lessened, Um that, that it becomes hard to talk about what it is, that we now pretend that you have to be a specialist in order to spot its invisible operation. So that's one thing. And on the other hand, it's, it's again, this sort of problem of, you know, how this has now sort of become naturalized as a kind of cultural politics, maybe, um, that's sort of very removed, like maybe what a part of what racial liberalism does is sort of erect this sort of cultural political stage that's actually quite apart from the political stage. And so that we get all of these writers, sort of black and white, who are very willing to sort of trade in very high radical racial rhetoric that has very little to do with the conditions of anyone's lives except the people who profit off of it, you know, the authors themselves. And so I guess I'm curious about those two things, about thinking about, okay, maybe it is possible to stage some kind of politics through literature, but if so, that that a part of the legacies of racial liberalism is that there's now this new sort of cultural apparatus that ties it to, to capital rather than to actual conditions of lived experience. Um, and then on the other hand, and even so, as flawed as racial liberalism is, I mean, <laughs> it's successful on so many fronts and in ways that are really sort of important. I know that's not something that's said very often right now in our in our sort of discourse, but it's just unavoidably true. Especially if we're talking about hearts and minds, if we're just talking about on the level of racial attitude. It's definitely true. Um so yeah, I guess I'm curious about those two things that keep tripping me up. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm tripped up as well. I think and I think those are those are great questions um because I do think you're you're absolutely right, um, and there because there is a limitation to you know I think the sexy thing to do is to not critique Richard Nixon, but to critique you know critique LBJ, right? It's sort of it's it's in some ways it's more sophisticated to want to go after the the seeming ally and reveal them to in fact be your enemy, right? Um, and and I think that's absolutely that's absolutely true, um, and and is worth being sort of cautious around. Um, and I think that, you know, part of what I wanted to explore with this book, or and I, I hope this will sort of get toward answering your question, um, is that I wanted to think, I'm, I've sort of, I'm interested in exploring sort of the periods around um, what we think of as transformative periods of change. And so in that case, this is the civil rights era. Um, and I think there's sort of common assumptions about what ultimately maybe limited what the civil rights era could achieve or civil rights movements could achieve. And, and we know those, those narratives, it's the, the white backlash narrative, or it's the idea that a certain liberal coalition kind of came apart in the late 1960s, perhaps due to 
the Vietnam War or to uh, in, in, in a sort of white reaction to the Black Power movement. Um, and then there's other historians who will argue that, you know, there was kind of this persistent kind of white segregationist movement that always sort of operated alongside um, the civil rights movements. Um, but, you know, in my in my attempt to try to think about, like, well, how does change happen and, and what are the assumptions sort of woven into the way we think about time and change? I was really interested in this book and thinking about what what um, sort of ideological parameters were put in place in this period just before the civil rights era, this period that we associate with with some with transformative change that maybe limited what it could be or become or what could be demanded during during that period um, and even demanded for how long. And I think that's part of what what I'm sort of exploring in the book is. Um, is not that these ideas themselves were all bad, right? I don't think that anyone would argue against it's good to understand other people better and to, to sort of form sort of empathy for for others, unlike oneself. Um, but that there are certain assumptions, I think, around the way that change happens and when change happens that um, that do ultimately constrain what a subsequent movement could achieve or ask for or the way that people would then respond to that. And I think a lot of that has to do with this idea of racism as being a time-limited issue or time-limited problem that is introduced in the 1940s, which assumes that what we need, therefore, are time-limited remedies. Um, and so, so it's not so much that racial liberalism itself is at fault, but it does introduce, I think, a kind of framework for thinking about race and change and time that that sets limits on what can be achievable subsequently. Um, and I know you had, I'll, I'll pass it back to you if you wanted to ask a follow-up question, because I know you had a couple of different things that I jotted down here to, that you were, were, were curious about. Yeah, you know, I find that, no, I find that interesting. Um, you know, of course, like, like you say, yes, obviously some of this stuff is good. And as I, as I hear you speak, you know, and I'm thinking about, okay, so we've, we've lessened racism a bit. Um, it's still persistent, whatever. We're probably never going to eliminate racism to 0% because we're a human society and that's that. But I, I am curious about, you know, it seems like in many, like one of the things I appreciate about your book is right in each of your chapters, you can see, oh, here's like, here's a kind of unintended consequence of this kind of action that was meant to ameliorate some harm, right? And I sort of love that as we sort of move into the next chapter about integration, where we now get this sort of discourse of, of, of sort of, what do you call it, the Black damage narrative. But, you know, one of the things I'm interested in then is like what you would say to someone and you, you, you enter into conversation a bit with these guys in your, in your notes in the back of your book. But I wonder what you would say to, to, to sort of read to, to Walter Ben Michaels, to Kenneth Warren. I mean, okay, so it seems like hearts and minds, okay, it seems like we've been, let's, if you agree that we've been able to sort of lessen racism significantly, right? On some level, the hearts and minds campaign still worked, but we still have all of these forms of inequality. I mean, at some point, it, it seems to me that the question then becomes like, what work is this category that Ruth Benedict sort of engineered? What work is it doing socially and culturally? And is it actually describing the societal harms that we're trying to solve, right? I mean, maybe one of the problems is that when you say racism and other people say racism, all those people are talking about a totally different set of things. Um, and so that's what, I mean, as you were just sort of speaking, I'm thinking, well, I mean, darn, like, well, what degree is, it's not that racism doesn't exist, but I was thinking, well, well to what degree is racism then the central problem that we're talking about at all? 
Mm-hmm. Right. Which yeah, is still yeah. not a denial of racism. You know, that's not what mm-hmm. I'm saying. I'm just, is that, is that the fulcrum on which the societal ills that people point to when they say racism, is that, is that where they rest is on some kind of anti-black animus? Is that still an argument that can be made? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, I think I'm running into problems with that, with how you've answered some of these questions. And so I guess the short way to ask that is, yeah, I mean, what do you do with, with Reed and Walter Ben Michaels and, and with um, Kenneth Warren? And, and what do you do with them in relationship to this sort of concept racism that we know has this certain life that's attached to race science? And now attached to all of these ways that it's circulated in all these different spheres of society, which are really about sort of reinforcing to some degree black damage narratives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, and I do think that it's, um, you know, to, you know, and I, I don't address them extensively, but sort of, you know, both, you know, Michaels and, and Warren and, and sort of the Jacobin crowd, uh, you know, in, in the book, which, which, and this is not to sort of reduce the, the idea of that group, which I know tries to sort of nuance this, but, you know, effectively prioritizing sort of class above race um, to some extent. And I think that, um, I think that sort of understanding the way in which capital just, for accumulation, which makes a capital sort of depends on the introduction of human differences and the way in which a dominant form of human difference for much of modern life has been race, has been racial. Um, and, and I do think that your question about the language around sort of racism is, 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 is a good one, which is that, you know, is, is part of the problem that we are talking past one another when we use the term racism and some people understand that to mean blank and some people understand that to mean something else. Um, because I do think that that is, is an issue. And part of it has to do with, I think that, you know, and people have tried, of course, you know, you know, uh, everyone uses the term structural racism. I'm not sure everyone even knows what they're talking about when they say that now, but it's certainly pervasive. Um, and, and I think that that is in some ways a response to sort of this dominant idea of racism that was introduced in the 1940s still. And I don't know what the answer is on a language level, but certainly the very fact that we think of Ruth Benedict as the person who coined the term racism and what Benedict was thinking about was certainly not, um, race as being a division of material possession or capital so much as a set of, uh, sort of empathetic channels that she was trying to help cultivate um, that I think that's precisely why there is often so much um, disagreement about what exactly constitutes the, you know, quote unquote significance of, of race. Um, Because I do think that there is still a strong desire to want to think about race and racism, even in our enlightened age um, in a very Benedict in a very Benedict-like way, um, precisely because it's easier and it's comforting. Um, and it, it, you know, to go back to sort of the question of solutions and solutionism, um, I think we want to reach for what can be done. And it's much easier to reach for the thing that is do seems doable, right? Which is uh, reading the book, which is, um, you know, cultivating fellow feeling, <laughs> which is, you know, these things that, you know, are not bad, but are, are certainly not, uh, you know, nothing that we could describe as, um, as enough or as uh, transformative. Yeah, so I just just a follow up to that. And then I do want to turn to the to the final chapter. I guess I'm curious about why is racism an effective way to describe material inequality if what we mean is material inequality? And 
if that's not what we mean when we use racism and what we mean is this sort of empathetic feeling world, Ruth Benedictian kind of sense of racism, you know, why is that useful? Because uh, part of the reason why I'm asking this is because your final chapter, right, we're thinking about sort of integration. And there's always this kind of idea that, and you're not saying this, but this is a discourse that exists, that integration failed in some way. And, and usually it failed on these sort of empathetic grounds. It failed on the, these kind of psychic, psychodynamic grounds. And I'm just, I'm curious. So that's, I mean, that's just where the question comes from. And I also think this is often where um, Adolf Reed et al. are coming from, right? Where it's just like, well, no, you guys are actually confusing two different things, right? White people might still hate Black people, but by all, by all measures, integration has been a significant success. And I'm curious about this also because the emotional stuff, which is sometimes sort of rerouted into a kind of radical politics, then kind of has this sort of inverse sort of temporal logic to it, that rather than saying that, you know, sort of racism has some end, it's that racism is never going to end. And that, and they mean that as a sort of racism, as a determinative um, dimension of black life. And I just, I find, I find it kind of ironic because it seems to have emerged out of this, I don't know, this sort of liberal conception, this liberal racist conception. And so I, I guess I'm curious about those things, not not simply like people meaning different things when they say racism. But if when you say racism, what you actually mean is sort of differential access and material inequality. And why not just say that? Because that seems like that leads more closely to a solution than than saying like it means like white people being mean. And, I, and I'm not saying this to like discount sort of histories of white racial terror, sort of, et cetera. Of course not. But it does seem to me that if we're sort of invested in solutionism, then it, I don't know, then it might be useful to sort of disaggregate some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I see your, I see your point. I see your point. I mean, I guess, I guess in, in terms of looking at this, this period specifically, um, it feels, and I think it still feels today like um, those forms, those articulations of difference along racial lines are so central to uh to that material inequality that you're describing um, that sort of one can't exist without the other. And that in fact, disaggregating sort of might in fact sort of reinforce uh, or potentially reinforce a kind of um, a status quo, because I think understanding the way in which race and capital function um, hand in hand um, necessitates um, thinking uh, thinking thinking through those not as sort of disaggregated sort of components, um, but but in terms of I, I think in, in in recognizing that um, you know and this is this is sort of not not to sort of discount the idea that there has not been you know positive outcomes of even sort of the the sort of the racial liberal period that I'm describing. Um, but that what we can I think see very apparent very very clearly is all that all that sort of that disaggregation which I think existed in the 1940s and 1950s left untouched um, and and so I do think that um, even as the sort of maybe you know we could say the emotional life of the nation is perhaps improved by this period um, it was precisely the fact that that disaggregation that you know I don't know that Adolf Reed advocates this necessarily but so, something like this that we already went through a period like that we already disaggregated that, that was racial liberalism um, in which we saw these as two separate um, two separate things 
Um, and we sort of know what came of that, right? Which was some some great things and a, a lot that didn't didn't change. And so so I guess that's sort of the if, if I'm going to derive a, a lesson <laughs> of the period that I'm sort of focused on in the book, um, it's it's that it's that it's sort of the it's that racial liberalism tells us that desegregation didn't work since we've um, we've done that. Well, I guess I guess I guess you know on several points, I I, I don't know that I'm I'm sure what what you mean by that because I mean. Disaggregation in the context of Jim Crow is certainly different than disaggregation when when we pull sort of racist attitudes in 2022 are sort of significantly changed. And you can say, well, people lie when they're polled, but people didn't weren't even compelled to lie. Then we'll say in 1940, like it's at least a measurement of some kind of change. And so then I guess I remain curious about what you mean when you say that the emotional life of racism is so central to its sort of material unfolding, because then I'm curious about the mechanism, right? The mechanism of how, right? As we sort of look at how society operates now, if we look at these different sectors that you're pointing out in your book, I mean, this is something that gets repeated quite a bit, but I'm always curious about how, like, what's the mechanism? So are you saying like the people in charge, the the, the very elite, that their investment in the status quo is due to anti-Black animus? Or are you making a different kind of sort of Marxian argument about how uh, discourse is being manipulated to control the masses? You know, I mean, this is what I mean about sort of disaggregating. It's not so much saying that racism, it doesn't exist. It's saying, okay, maybe racism does exist, but what's the mechanism that exists right now in 2020 for whatever sort of emotional reality of racism that we see in the United States for what is the mechanism that affects the actual lived conditions of black people, even if we just limit it to black people? And people are hard pressed to, to often to articulate that mechanism, which why it feels often that we're just kind of living in an afterlife of, of, the, of, of, of the thing that you describe, racial liberalism, but calling it radicalism for some reason. We're just in a heightened emotional state and we call it radicalism. But in, in effect, we can't explain anything. And so we're so far from solutionisms that we might as well just read a book and feel good. You know, just give me anti-racist baby because that's easy. There are good people and there are bad people, you know. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah. And I, I guess I would say, you know, part of it is also sort of turning, you know, I don't think it, it require it doesn't require necessarily animus for white people to want to keep what they already have. Um, and I think that to some extent is sort of where is where that intersection comes in, which is that um it doesn't require a white person to articulate a kind of anti-black ideology to simply not want to pay uh, property taxes or um, or something something that you know might you know lean towards a kind of redistributive po- politic that um, that I think can be cast in a kind of deracialized sort of way. Um, but, and that's sort of going back to sort of the, the chapter about integration, you know, part of my point is not so much even that, that, because I think we know of sort of Kenneth and Mamie Clark sort of doll test as being sort of associated with a certain kind of black damage narrative, but sort of what I wanted to explore in that chapter was much more the way in which if we look at sort of the way that personality psychology informed that Supreme court decision, Pervasive throughout it was actually a white damage narrative, was the idea that racism was somehow damaging to the white mind. Um, And that what we needed to do was care for white kids who needed to 
have their prejudices curbed. And so this was actually as much invested in um, caring for what was what sort of personality psychologists identified as the quote unquote American personality, which by which they meant sort of white school age children as it was about the black damage narrative. And so I think that that to me is also sort of part of the story, which is uh, the kind of the ways in which white racial interests operate then and now. Um, and and I do think that that um, that can that can that can, I think, very easily sort of work in a way that feels like disconnected from race precisely because it's much easier to advocate for preserving what already exists as opposed to um, thinking about um, the other the flip side of that, which is which is change or transformation. Yeah. So I, I do want to say very quickly, then I'm going to ask you a question. You know, people can't pay property taxes that they're not compelled to pay. So again, the question becomes like prior to us getting to, yeah, these attitudes, you know, I always tell my students, right, if you think it's absurd that, you know, sort of... <sighs> if you think it's absurd that, you know, sort of white people, there are racist white people who are upset that like you might be determining sort of their ability to live a life well, right? Somehow you're sort of playing in the American social and civic space has an effect on, on their well-being. It should also be equally absurd that a random white racist has the power to affect your life. How? What's the mechanism? If Judy is rude to me on the elevator, who cares? Judy will never enter into my life in any determinative way. And so always the question becomes, let's say that racial animus exists. Let's let's grant it even. Let's say it's widespread. What is the mechanism that makes it matter in American society today? We're not in a caste society, right? There isn't widespread racial terror. There isn't, even even amongst the police, right, who shoot maybe 15 men in the back, you know, a year, not more than that. What is the mechanism? And so that's that's my question. So we then we have to think about the elite and what they're doing. And whether or not they're fueled by animus or whatever or something else. And I think that's where sort of Reed, Walter and Michaels, et cetera, sort of enter the picture. It's not to deny racism. It's to simply say, look, the construction of our society, it has this racist history, right? These are ongoing dynamics in American life. But the idea that somehow like poor whites are collectively, collectively affecting black Americans on its face seems kind of not only irrational, but crazy. How? How? These people who are otherwise shut out of society just by virtue of watching Fox News are collectively affecting the life chances of Black Americans, whatever they might be. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a hard thing to, to figure out. Well, what's the mechanism? So that's where the question came from. But big question to end on. But anyway, I wanted to, you know, to close, I'm curious about all right. So folks coming to your book, they think they have an understanding of liberalism. What does the strange career of racial liberalism have to say to them? What does it have to say to them? Um, you know, it, I mean, a, a few different things. And, you know, I, I think we, I could, as you've probably already sensed, I could go in, I could probably talk forever about each of the individual chapters and sort of the point I want to make there. Um, but, but for me, I do think it's, it's sort of wrestling with the way in which um, 
ideas about time and change structure uh, structure our our assumptions. Um, you know, I end the book with this conversation that I see as kind of a, a kind of a wake for racial liberalism. This conversation between James Baldwin and Margaret Mead, um, two two people who had different relationships with racial liberalism, but that I think in this this conversation they have in 1970, which was released as a as a sort of transcript book and as a recorded album. It really strikes me that they're they're sort of talking past one another throughout uh, the conversation, and um, both of them are wrestling with the same thing, which is kind of the legacy of racial liberalism. Um, and Margaret Mead, I think, is sort of steadfast um, in the position that she had held uh, alongside her mentor Ruth Benedict since the 1940s, whereas Baldwin, you know, it's it's sort of hard to follow his thinking in part because I don't think he quite knows yet what he thinks. And if you get the sense that he's really wrestling with assumptions around time and change and what those mean. And he's thinking about time as kind of cumulative rather than progressive or linear. Um, and it, it, it really strikes me in looking at that, the way in which Mead and Baldwin, both of whom are wrestling with, okay, well, what do we do now? It's 1970. Um, what, what has, you know, our, you know, what has our work meant? What have we done? What have we participated in? What have we contributed to? Um, and they don't seem like they can have a conversation. And <laughs> a lot of that, uh, it, to me, it seems like has to do with uh, the different ways in which they're thinking about time and change. Um, and so that's what I think I hope people will get from the book is sort of just to sort of second guess and rethink those assumptions that we make about time and race and change that I think were introduced in the 40s and 50s. Um, in in a sort of accelerated way, um, but that are that are that more than any other aspect of this history, I think, are still with us now. All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Joe. Ah, well, thank you, Brittany. I really appreciate the conversation, and you give me a lot to think about. So I really, really do appreciate it, and, and it was honored to to chat with you.